There we go. All right, got a whole bunch of stuff up here for you today. Uh, two assignments that are due today. The third article review, third and last article review, is due today or by 6 o'clock tomorrow on D2L. If you have a cop paper copy, of course, you're going to turn in. You can turn that in after class. If you're doing the extra credit, you're doing the extra credit assignment, creating the exam questions. I do need that submitted on D2L. I want those digital copies, so if I want to copy and paste things, it's a lot easier than me getting a paper copy to type in. So please submit those on D2L into, there is an extra credit Dropbox on there. You can just submit them there. And I will take care of getting you credit for looking at those. Again, if you're look, still looking at that, uh, I gave you the handout um, a week or two ago. That's one question from each, of the, from each of the chapters on the exam coming up, 13, 14, and 15. Your choice of what type, whether it is you know, multiple choice, true, false, essay, but I do want the question and the answer and a, a reference to what you're, what you're referring to for the textbook or site that you use to find the information. On Friday, you have the seventh homework due next to the last one, and I'll give you the final homework at that point. And quiz seven will also be available this weekend. And then next week on Monday, we'll have the exam, fourth exam covering chapters 13, 14, and 15. And coming up there, we're almost done. This last thing, everything else here due November. Rest of the stuff will start next time on December. Uh, assignments is the course evaluation extra credit. I gave you a handout that. I mentioned that too. The course eval, we're not doing a seek in the class. It's online. If you've already done it and emailed me, you've already gotten the extra credit points for it. If you've done it and haven't emailed me, you won't get them because I don't know that you've, that you've done it without you telling me. Uh, the, the, it closes at midnight on the 30th, so you have to tell me before that. So don't come in the next week and say, oh, I did it. I, need to, I want the email from you before it closes. So send me that email that just says, hey, I finished that, and I will add the five points into your, into your grade for, for that. So that'll be five extra, you know, half, a, half a lab worth or a little, a little under half of a quiz worth of points that you, can, that you can get there for just completing that. But you won't get a paper one here in class to, to do for the course evaluation. So I appreciate those who've already done it. I think I've got like five or six so far. And you should already see your points on there. Any questions on anything there? We've got about seven more items to put up here and we're done. So the seventh item after what's on, after what's on here will be the final exam. But Two, of the, two more of those are the extra credit assignments that are due the beginning of December. So coming down to the very end of it, end of it, everything here. Questions? Questions? We're good. Don't forget the article review. Don't forget the extra credit if you're going to, to do that there. All righty. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, in the, uh, on D12, where yes. the grades are listed, are you going to put like a section for all of the extra credits? Because I know you have a couple of them in there, mm -hmm. but not all the ones that you offered to know whether or not. There will be eventually, when, when they're done, if they're, if they're not in there now, I add them, I'll add them in as they, as they come in. So they might not show up right now, but you should see the, the course evaluation one should be in there. Mm -hmm. And it'll show either five points or it'll show a blank that you got, that there's no credit for it. But they should all, eventually they'll all be in there. If all, some of them I put in there, I don't know if I have actual grade book entries for them until I actually get them. Okay. But they will, they will eventually show up in there. I won't just add, I'll add them each separately so you can see where the points, where the points are. Anything else? Alrighty, well, picture of the day for today. 
I get one here. This one really, tie, really ties in after all the nice comet ones we had last week. We have a nice bright spiral galaxy here. And this is the spiral galaxy uh, M81. M81 is the 81st item in Charles Messier's catalog. And he was cataloging objects that looked fuzzy through his small telescope. So couldn't see anything like this through his small telescopes, but he saw objects that looked like comets or little fuzzy patches in the sky and cataloged them, cataloged a little over a hundred of them to avoid confusion. So he knew hey, that's an object I already know and that other astronomers looking for comets and other moving objects would be able to say they knew what these were and they weren't, didn't have to sit there and, and study them. We see a lot of the features that we talked about in terms of a spiral galaxy over the last chapter. You have the central core here and the bulge, the yellowish area in here with older and young stars kind of mixed together, giving you an average of a yellowish color. You see the much younger spiral arms out in a very bluish, bluish color. Blue color being from the very hot stars that form in those spiral arms and that don't live very long. So they spend their whole life in those spiral arms. They don't have time to travel around through the rest of the galaxy as our sun would. Our sun would travel through the spiral arms and would continue on in its orbit through the other parts of the galaxy and then come through the next spiral arm. These stars don't. They stay in those spiral arms from the time they're born to the time they die. Not because they don't want to go or they're not moving, but just they don't live long enough. The amount of distance that they'll travel over their lifetime is incredibly small. So they highlight the spiral arms and make them look very, very blue in color. We also see the reddish coloring, which is the hydrogen gas excited by those stars. That hydrogen gives off that bright red line of hydrogen that we looked at. And you see that kind of in a reddish pink color around here. What we don't see in this and it's very hard to see in a spiral galaxy is the halo. Remember there's that big spherical halo that surrounds the disk. You can't really see it directly in these images. You can make measurements that will detect the stars in that part of the galaxy. But it's not something that is as near as bright as the rest of the galaxy. And the other thing that you don't see, for good reason, is the dark matter. Right? We talked a little bit about dark matter. We're coming up. We'll do a little more on that today. But there's also a lot of dark material associated with this galaxy, either in the within the galaxy itself, some of it, but a lot of it is actually outside the edges of the galaxy and surrounds the entire galaxy. So there's a lot of dark matter that we simply cannot see that doesn't interact with light, doesn't give off light, doesn't interact with light, so it doesn't block out any of the light from us. Not like the dusty areas that we see. But it actually doesn't do anything except interact gravitationally. And we're going to be looking at that coming up when we start chapter 16 later today. So I just thought since we were looking at a galaxy here, I'd bring that up as well. Let me go ahead and stop, stop there unless there are questions. Alrighty. Well, let's go ahead out and we'll finish up chapter 15, which is the rest of the last one for the exam. And Let's see, right here. Okay, that's about where we were looking at last time. We were talking about the central engine of a black hole, central engine, or central engine of a black hole, central engine of a galaxy, of an active galaxy, that being the black hole at the center. So this is uh, artist's conception of what we might, of what you might see if you could get real close to the central portion of one of these active galaxies. Our galaxy itself would have something similar, except you wouldn't have near as much material spiraling around. The more material you have in this disk, 
The more matter that is being fed into the black hole, the more energetic it's going to be. And the more likely it is to look like a Seifert galaxy, a radio galaxy, a quasar, the active galaxies that we looked at last time, the more energy, the more material that you're feeding into it. As the black hole absorbs all that matter or finally radiates it away, and if there's an, not a lot of matter to be added, then the black hole sits there relatively quiet. It doesn't do anything. It's just going to sit there. It's going to be a source of gravity, but it's not actually going to do much or give off a lot of energy. That's the state that our black hole is in in our galaxy. There is some material spiraling into it, but not a whole lot. Not like we've seen with these active galaxies. Uh, the disk around it is called an accretion disk as the material is being spiraled into the black hole. It's moving, it's rotating very quickly, so it's not just the, gra the gravity of the black hole is not strong enough, it can't just pull it straight in. It slowly spirals in and works its way in in a spiral down towards the black hole. As it does, it gets hotter and hotter and heats up to higher and higher temperatures. So eventually as you're getting in here, you're talking temperatures that are millions of degrees, tens of millions of degrees. Uh, the corona of our sun was millions of degrees. That emits a lot of x-rays. The core of our sun is tens of millions of degrees. That emits a lot of gamma rays. Right? They don't get straight out to us, but they're being emitted from the core. That's what's being generated in the core. That's the kind of energy that is being generated deep down close to this black hole. Some of that material escapes. Nothing that gets into the black hole can escape. But as it's coming in higher and higher energy, and you get down to the magnetic field lines here, some of that material is actually streamed out in jets that is perpendicular to the way the disk is rotating. So you have the material rotating on a nice flat disk and you have a jet of material going up and a jet of material going down. Not all of the material, some of it spirals into the black hole, but some of it gets sent into these jets of energy that we saw. We saw those beams when we looked at radio galaxies. A lot of material getting beamed out and emitting a lot of radio waves. So that's kind of what we were looking at last time. And I'm going to have a little bit more, we're kind of just finishing up, I only have a little bit more on this chapter to do. I did want to note, if you're following along on the, if you follow along on the PowerPoints that I put up on D2L, you'll see a few missing. I've been taking out a few that are either duplicates in terms of covering the same information, or just not as important that I want to make sure we get through everything we're supposed to. So if you do notice a few missing, it's not that they're un completely unimportant, but just that I'm trying to focus us for the last couple of weeks here. So, how big are these, are these black holes? The one at the center of our galaxy was about three and a half to four million times the mass of the sun. That's not a very big black hole. Sounds tremendous compared to what we were talking about in terms of stars, where a star might form something that's four or five or ten solar masses, millions of them. In these active galaxies, if you constantly are adding material to that black hole, you can get a tremendous black hole, including ones that get up to many billions of times the mass of the sun. So ours, our little four million solar mass black hole, well, multiply that by 250 times, put 250 of those together to make a one billion solar mass black hole, and keep going if you want to make it even bigger. If you want it two billion or three billion or four billion, it's a tremendous amount of matter. And in some cases, it can be you know, more matter than we see in typical galaxies even like our own. Some of these very active galaxies can have tremendous black holes at the center. The accretion disk, we looked at that with smaller black holes and you'd have little gas clouds, little bits of gas and material. In this case, this is whole 
dust clouds. This is things like, you know, Orion Nebula size, very big star, whole star forming regions. So not just a, so a star, not just a single star, but entire clouds that could form hundreds or thousands of stars that are spiraling into the black hole. They give off a lot of energy as you heat, the, heat them up. As you heat those up, they can give off between 10 and 20 percent of their mass. And that gets converted to energy. Okay. When we looked at nuclear reactions in the sun, it's much less than 1% of the mass of the hydrogen atoms that is lost when you convert it to helium. Much less than a percent. That's all the energy of the sun. In this case, 10 to 20% of their mass is gone. That's what we're getting all that energy for. If you're converting 10 to 20% of the mass of a star, something the size of the sun, into pure energy, that is a heck of a lot of energy that you are creating. That's where all the energy that we talk about from these black holes is coming from. We're heating them up to such a high temperature and radiating away tremendous amounts of their mass. They're losing actually a lot of material is even being radiated away before it gets absorbed by the black hole. And then the other, you know, 80 to 90 percent can be absorbed by the black hole causing it to grow. The more you feed that, the bigger you get and you go from black holes the size of our black hole at the center of our galaxy, four or so million solar masses, to things that are much, much larger and can be as many as billions of times the mass of the sun. We see some evidence for this. I showed you some in our own galaxy when we looked at that video uh, last week. I showed you a video clip that showed the rotation of the stars, how fast the stars moved. Well, when we look at other galaxies, we can't really see the stars that close to the center. So this is looking at a galaxy that isn't all that far away. M87 is that real big elliptical galaxy in Virgo, in the Virgo cluster. It's a gigantic galaxy that's kind of the central main galaxy of that cluster. Now, we can't see individual stars when we look in close here, even down looking in the infrared. But we can see there is something real bright at the core. That would be looking down into the accretion disk. But we can look at the material around it. And we can take a spectrum of it. If we take a spectrum of one side, we find that it's significantly blue shifted. That material is coming towards us as it rotates. If we look at the other side here, that material is strongly red shifted. Not just slightly, but you're seeing a dramatic shift between what you see on one side and what you see on the other. There's a big shift in that. That tells us how fast it's rotating. And like we did with those stars orbiting around the center of our galaxy, we could use that, we could use those stars to estimate the mass of our galaxy. We can use the rotation of this gas to estimate the mass of the black hole in this galaxy or in any other. Anything we can see close enough, we can start to get some measurements. When we look down, there we're looking down, you know, very, very close. This was the bigger image where we saw that jet coming out. There's one of those jets. When we zoom in on that, just looking really at just the very core there, we can actually begin to make measurements. That gives us a way to determine the mass. Faster things are moving, the more mass has to be there in, between, in, in the center to cause them to move, move at that speed. The less mass is there, the slower things are going to move. When we start to see things shifted this much, where you can actually see two very distinct lines, that tells us incredibly high speeds, meaning a very, very large mass at the center there.
Now we see some other evidence for that. Or sorry, this one first. Uh, what we have is, I told you, we had those very high temperatures. We had things that were many millions of degrees. So millions of degrees. Our corona of our sun was millions of degrees. It gave out lots of x-rays. The core of our sun is tens of millions of degrees. It emits lots of gamma rays. Well, if that's the temperatures we're getting in this disk, very close to the black hole, we should be seeing lots of x-rays and gamma rays. In some cases we do, in some cases we do not. And this is sort of giving you an idea. It all depends on how we're looking at the galaxy. If we're looking kind of straight down at, down at it, we see everything. We see x-rays, we see gamma rays, we see visible, we see infrared, we see radio waves. We see the entire spectrum being radiated away. Higher energies close, lower energies further out as the temperatures are lower. However, if we're looking at it through a dust cloud, a lot of that material gets absorbed. Just like the material, all those gamma rays formed at the center of the sun don't get out directly. Right? We're glad we're not being bombarded by gamma rays from the sun with all the gamma rays it's producing. Get, they get absorbed and re-emitted as they work their way out. Well, if we have dust around the black hole, the same thing can happen. The gamma rays that are produced here can be absorbed and re-emitted then as x-rays, as several x-rays. Each x-ray can then be absorbed and re-emitted as ultraviolet. And as you work your way out, by the time it gets through all this dust, you've converted you know, a few gamma rays into lots and lots of infrared rays. Same amount of energy. Okay? You can't lose any energy in the process. So you, some can go into heating up the material. But in essence, you're taking lots and lots of gamma or lots of gamma rays and turning them into even more, many, many more infrared rays. So if you're looking this direction, you're going to see lots more infrared radiation when we're looking through that disk. When we look down it, we see a lot more of the of everything. We see all the different parts of the spectrum. So it's really changing uh, in this case the technical term being reprocessed. You're taking the x-rays and gamma rays at high energies and converting them into lower energy radiation. Last thing I wanted to come to here was the type of radiation. And to give you the name for it, it's synchrotron radiation. It's very different than what we looked at for stars. Stars emit what we call thermal radiation. Remember they were black bodies. Their temperature told you what their spectrum would be. And it all looked exactly like this purple line here. Where the peak was, depended on the temperature. If it was really, really hot, a hot blue star, hot star, it would be out in the blue. If it was a really cool star, it would be over in the red. But either way, the spectrum looked the same. Very high up here in the middle, depending on what the temperature was. Very low as you go out to radio waves. Very low as you go down to x-rays or gamma rays. This is a completely different type of radiation that we're getting from these active galaxies. You have really strong magnetic fields. Strong magnetic fields confine charged particles. They keep them trapped. And the electrons, in a sense, spin around those magnetic field lines. So instead of just going straight out, they go in this little kind of corkshoe uh, shape. That means we're accelerating them. right? Even if their speed isn't changing, remember, if you, uh, acceleration can be changing the direction as well. We talked about that way, way back when we talked about the moon and gravity and how the moon can be, an object can be accelerated even if it's not changing its speed, if it's changing its direction. 
When you accelerate a charged particle, it gives off energy. And the type of energy it gives off is what we call synchrotron radiation. It gives us a spectrum like the blue line here. A lot of radio waves, and then it just slowly declines as you go towards higher and higher energies. If you add these two together, that's pretty much what you get for an active galaxy. You'll see some thermal radiation, because that, that galaxy does have stars, so it's emitting this kind of radiation. But it also has lots of particles spiraling along these magnetic field lines. And that means that instead of getting just a little bit of radio waves that you'd get from a normal galaxy, you get a lot of radio waves. Instead of getting essentially no x-rays and gamma rays, you're still getting a pretty high amount of x-rays and gamma rays because of the synchrotron radiation. It's, but it's completely different. So it allows us to tell the difference. All we have to do is measure that galaxy at different frequencies, how much energy is it emitting, and it can tell us directly whether it is an active galaxy or not. So we can actually make measurements to determine how much and how active it is and how much it's giving out there. So that's the last one I want to end with there. I'm going to stop at that point and ask if there are any questions. This is where I'm ending for the exam. So exam will stop at 15. I'm going to go on because I'm hopefully we'll get through most of 16 this week so we can start 17 next Wednesday. Because 17 is the 17 is the other mind-blowing one after black holes where you have to start thinking about the universe and what the edge of the universe means and all that kind of fun stuff. No, no. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started on 16 then, which I have set up here. There it is. Which is galaxies and dark matter. So we're still going to be talking about galaxies. But we're going to get into the idea of dark matter again. Now I talked about that in terms of our own galaxy and how there is some material that we simply cannot see. And we can make measurements of our galaxy. We can measure the rotation of, the, the rotation of stars. As we look further and further out to the edge of our galaxy, eventually we should get to the point where things start moving slower and slower because all the matter is inside. All the we're outside almost all the matter in the galaxy, and they're going to behave like the planets do around the sun. Inner planets move faster, outer planets move slower. But what we find with our galaxy and with other galaxies is that doesn't happen. Is that our galaxy there is the pink one, our Milky Way, and instead of slowing down, even when you get out to the edge of the galaxy, what you can see is the edge of the galaxy, which is in ours, what about somewhere in here between 15 and 20 kiloparsecs? That's what we see is when you look at the galaxy, like we looked at the one here, look at the galaxy here. You know, you see an edge to it pretty much. It fades out, but it looks like, if you were just going to guess, you know, it looks like most of the material, if I draw a big circle here, it looks like I've included most of the material, most of the matter. We find that we haven't. And our galaxy is not unusual in this. Lots of other galaxies do the same thing. None of them, no galaxy, actually declines. You'd expect once you get outside all the matter, then all of a sudden the rotational speed would decrease and would slide down the way it does in our solar system. Once you get outside the surface of the sun, you're outside most of the matter in the solar system. The little tiny specks of planets don't really matter much. Once you get out here, you expect you've got that massive black hole at the center. You've got all these stars and dust clouds that you're now, in, now outside of. 
you'd expect that you'd be outside almost all of the matter and the speeds would start to slow down where we find that they don't. They continue to rise in some cases, maybe decline a little bit, at least level off, you know, depending on the specific galaxy. Ours tends to rise. This one looks like it's leveled off a little bit. This one declined here and then really leveled off, maybe even ticking up a little bit there. Nothing that really drops drastically, which is what they should do once we get outside most of the material. That tells us that there is a lot of material that we're not seeing. And that material isn't in the galaxy. You couldn't just put you know, thousands of black holes scattered around the galaxy because they're inside your orbit. If they're inside your orbit, you're counting them in terms of how fast you're moving. So if I change the mass of this from, you know, of the center of our galaxy from 4, billion, 4 million solar masses to 40 million solar masses, make it 10 times bigger, it wouldn't change the orbits. It would change how fast everything moved, but it wouldn't change the calculation that there's got to be a lot more material out there to account for it. Because that material would already be accounted for in the orbiting itself. Okay. Now there's another way we could measure galaxies. Not to get them directly, but we can actually average the mass of a galaxies in a cluster by looking at their speeds, how they're moving relative to each other. When stars are in a cluster, you know, they're not all moving to the whole cluster will have some overall motion, but within the cluster some stars will be going one way, some will be going the other way. Galaxies will do the same thing. So if here's a sample galaxy cluster, we see some galaxies are coming this way towards the observer, some are moving away. They're all orbiting around each other, orbiting around some center of mass of that entire cluster. But we can estimate how much mass there is in the cluster by how they're moving. Why can we do that? Because if there were not, if there's a, there needs a certain amount of mass, the faster they're moving, the more mass you need to hold them together. Otherwise, if there's not enough mass in the cluster, not enough gravity to hold them together, they'd escape. Right? This one here that's heading this direction, if, it's heading with, if that velocity is greater than the escape velocity, it's just going to keep going and it's not going to be a part of that cluster anymore. Since we still see those clusters now, you know, billions of years after they formed, they have to be bound together gravitationally. So there has to be enough gravity within this cluster to hold it together. Just as there has to be enough, enough gravity within, say, a globular cluster to hold all those, all those stars together for billions of years, there has to be enough gravity within the galaxy clusters to hold them together. Well, we can see some of that, right? We can see some of that mass there. We can see the mass of that galaxy. We can see that one. We can see all this. And we can add all those up. We can estimate how much dark matter there is within each galaxy, right? like there was in ours. We can make that measurement. We can estimate, remember it was like two to three times maybe, or even a little bit more, the amount of matter that we see. And then figure out, okay, what do we need to keep the cluster bound together? Is that enough matter? And we find out that it isn't. Our galaxy, our galaxy required about two or three times the amount of material outside, further away than the visible edge of the galaxy, to explain its rotation. Other galaxies show that much or even a little more, up to 10 times. Meaning, again, for every star you see in the, in the galaxy, outside the visible edge, you need 10, 10 stars. For every, 
four million solar mass black hole you see in the center, you need four million solar masses outside the edge of that galaxy to explain what we're seeing. That's the only way we have to explain the, how they're rotating. There has to be extra matter outside the edges of those galaxies. And if you've read ahead there, it doesn't even get better. It gets worse. If you look at galaxy clusters, it can be even worse. Meaning that for every galaxy you see in a cluster, you need 10 to 100 galaxies outside. There is a lot of material out there gravitationally that has gravitational effects that we simply cannot see. So it's not that you could just add up all the missing material within the galaxies and say that's how much is missing in the clusters. Even when you add that all in, you're missing more material. You're missing a lot more material within the, gal within the galaxy clusters. There's even more dark matter. And it turns out that the amount of material that we see, all the stuff that we see, the stuff that we've studied so far, you know, the planets, the sun, the nebulae, the uh, clusters, the galaxies, all of that, turns out to be about 3% of the material in the universe. 3, 4%. That's about it. All the stuff that we studied, everything else is dark matter and another uh, dark energy that we'll come to in, another, in a future chapter. Yes, ma'am? Closest large galaxy, yes. Okay. If we're talking, I mean, we have the nebulae and some dwarf galaxies that orbit us, but the next biggest galaxy is Andromeda, yes. Okay. With Andromeda, mm -hmm. does it have like, the same kind of makeup that we do? Like, does it have a sun in there somewhere with planets? It has plenty of stars in it, and from what we're learning in our galaxy, most of the stars are going to have planets. It seems to be a natural part of formation of a star that planets will form. So it is very much a possibility that there could be life in Andromeda yes. similar to ours? Yes. And there could be an astronomy class there talking about whatever they call us <laughs> at the same time. You know. Of course, we won't know about it for two million years. So, <laughs> But yes, very possible that there could be. You know, discussing that, whatever they call, I'm sure they don't call ours the Milky Way, so you know, whatever they call, whatever they would call us. But yeah, that's correct. And it would have dark matter just like we do. That's, that's the big question is what this material, what this matter actually is. There, is some things that, there are some things that we find. We begin to find some material. This is uh, between the cluster, uh, cluster gas, a very hot gas that we can detect in x-rays. So you see some x-ray emissions around the clusters here and within the cluster that emits lots of x-rays that is very dense at, denser at the center and spreads out. There is some material there. Again, this isn't the dark matter because it's visible to it. We can detect it. But there is some material that you don't see directly. When you just look at all of these you know, galaxy clusters, they don't, all these galaxies, they don't just they jump out at you. You're, they're there. But for each of those galaxies, now you need another 10, 50, 100 of them worth of material. And there just isn't enough of this super hot gas, this many million degree gas, that is permeating the entire cluster. So there is some material like that. When we looked within our galaxy, we talked about things like white dwarf stars, cool white dwarfs. We talked about brown dwarfs or very small, very small red dwarf stars that just would be essentially invisible because of their lack of brightness. They're not very bright. But we do see some of this kind of gas. This is very old gas. This has been around for a long, long time. 
Um, in fact, what we, it's what we call uh, primordial, dating from the origin of the universe. So this is stuff that's been around since the universe formed, since the Big Bang. But there's not enough of it to explain, to hold that galaxy together. There's not enough mass there to keep that galaxy held together. Even if you add this mass in, all the mass that you see, these galaxy clusters should fly apart in a short time astronomically speaking. You know, they shouldn't survive for 10 billion years or 5 billion years as long as they form. The fact that they're still there means there has to be a lot more material than what we're actually seeing. So we're trying to figure out now what is that material because it makes up a large portion of the universe but to us it's, it's completely invisible. We can't observe it with any kind of telescope so you can't use a visible telescope, can't use an x-ray telescope, can't use a radio telescope. None of those are going to be able to detect it. The only way we detect its effects is gravitationally. It interacts gravitationally, but it doesn't interact with material any other way. So really it's something that astronomers are still debating, trying to figure out you know, what this matter could possibly be. And I think I mentioned the other option uh, earlier. There is one other thing that can explain this that doesn't involve dark matter, that could eliminate the, the need for dark matter. And that's that Einstein's wrong with his general relativity explaining gravity. Maybe it doesn't work on these very largest scales. And there are some scientists who have developed or are trying to develop you know, new theories of gravity that might explain everything we see and everything that, everything that we know so far without needing dark matter. You know, does gravity behave differently when you get out to these very, very large distances that we're talking about in terms of galaxy and galaxy cluster size? And that is something that is a possibility that, that astronomers are researching. Right now, I think they tend to agree more with the dark matter side. But that doesn't mean that 20, 50, 100 years from now, you might look back at that as silly as you know, we look back now at you know, the Earth is the center of the solar system. You know, time changes as we begin to learn more and more about, about things. All right, collisions of galaxies. Galaxies do collide, and I've given you some examples of that here in the past. Um, this is an example of one here image. Uh, this is the Cartwheel Galaxy. Doesn't look like any galaxy that we've looked at so far. You know, over here, what do you see? Maybe a, maybe a little spiral galaxy here. This one is just a real big ring around the galaxy. Doesn't have any of the distinct patterns to allow you to classify it as a spiral or a barred spiral, certainly not an elliptical or maybe you know, some kind of irregular galaxy. But most of what we see is that these are caused by collisions. And that's because the galaxies are pretty big compared to how far apart they are. Oh, let's see. Early, if you do a calculation, if you figure out how big this, the Milky Way is and how big the Andromeda galaxy is, and you do a calculation, and I don't think I think I do that. I think actually it's the 103 class that does that calculation early, early on in the course. You guys should too, but you missed it. But you find you can fit about 25 Milky Ways between here and the Andromeda galaxy. Not, I mean, not very many. That's not bad. Uh, if you try to do the calculation for how many stars you can fit between the Sun. And, and Alpha Centauri, the nearest star, there's a lot of stars that fit between them. That means that when you collide things, 
the stars just pass right by each other because there's so much empty space between them. You know, you can fit billions of stars between here and, you know, touch them side by side, and you can fit many billions of them between here and Alpha Centauri. Yeah? How would you even start to be able to figure that out, considering stars come in so many varying sizes? Well, you could do an estimate. I'm just saying for those, you could estimate the size of the sun. But yeah, there are varying sizes, but even the largest stars. You know, how many solar systems could you fit between here and Andromeda? A lot of them. You know, even if you go like that. So, I mean, you'd have to do some kind of average star estimate on it. Same thing with galaxies. I can do between us and Andromeda, but there's little tiny galaxies, there's great big galaxies. But on average, you know, if you can fit galaxies, and we're not in one of the densest areas either, so, you know, fitting 20 or 25 between us is still relatively close together. So, those galaxy collisions are actually quite frequent. I think I gave you the example of the, in the room too, right? Take the big beach balls, the galaxies, bounce, bounce a dozen of them around this room, and they're going to they're hit and hit each other, right? Ignore the fact that there's air resistance and they're going to eventually stop and just sit on the ground. You know, if you could keep them bouncing permanently, they're going to keep running into each other. If I took that same dozen little BBs and bounced them around the room, two of them might bounce into each other eventually, but most likely they're just going to zip past each other every time. That's what happens when the galaxies collide. The galaxies themselves do collide, but all the stars just pass right through each other. It's really a gravitational interaction. And that's what you're seeing here is kind of a splash. You've sent one galaxy, one of these galaxies perhaps splashed right through the middle of this one. You know, throw a rock into the pond, you get those big waves coming out. Well, here's the wave of material from that splash coming out where all the, all the gas and dust has been compressed and all the stars have formed. So we see lots of evidence of this, and we see lots of galaxies that don't look quite right. This one is really weird, but you also see others that just look a little bit off. They don't look quite like the spiral galaxies, the pretty spiral galaxies that I showed you images of. So this is one example of that, one example of collisions, and they do seem to occur quite often. And lots of galaxies show evidence of this. Here's another couple. Here's two galaxies, two spiral galaxies in the process of colliding. Now these two are just beginning the collision process. This could be us in Andromeda in a few billion years. You know, as one galaxy is colliding into each other, they'll begin to trigger star formation as the gas clouds in this galaxy collide into the gas clouds of this galaxy. Right? Gas clouds really big compared to stars. They will collide together, they will compress, and they will begin to form stars. The stars themselves you know, when Andromeda and the Milky Way collide, it really won't affect the stars. They won't collide with each other. They'll just go flying off in every direction depending on the gravity, how gravity interacts. But eventually, like these two, Andromeda and the Milky Way will probably merge together to form a single bigger galaxy. And if you could come back, you know, let that collision go on for the time it takes, you know, hundreds of millions of years and come back, you just see this new large galaxy and all that evidence is eventually wiped out. It's only when you catch them, you know, in the act of colliding that you really see and you really see any evidence. There's not much that's going to be left behind long after that. So, when galaxies collide, lots of star formation that we see and you can merge galaxies together. And this is how we think galaxies grow over time that our Milky Way didn't start out as a nice big spiral galaxy when it formed. It probably started out as lots of smaller galaxies that slowly combined together over time. Maybe even starting earlier on as big star clusters. Big star clusters slowly merged into small galaxies which slowly merged into bigger galaxies and that's how galaxies go from one type to another.
Here's another example. This is the antenna galaxy, or galaxies. There's two of them here. This is the actual image of it here in visible, in visible light. You have one galaxy there, one galaxy there, and you have a stream of material here and a stream of material coming out here. When you look closer, this is zooming in just at the little core here. Then we see there's the core of one galaxy, there's the core of the other, and you have these tremendous star clusters around where these two galaxies have collided. Again, the stars are not colliding, they're just passing through each other. Some of them are getting tossed out of the galaxy, expelled from the galaxy in one direction or another. But lots more are forming, and these are superstar clusters. So not just the little tiny ones that we've looked at here in our galaxy, where you might be forming you know, thousands of stars, but we could be forming tens or hundreds of thousands of stars at a time. Lots of stars, lots of hydrogen gas, all colliding, forming stars there. Eventually what will happen? Well, depending on their exact motions, likely those two would actually combine together and become a single, a single galaxy. On this side, let's try, to, let's try to match that. Let's do that with the computer simulation and see if we can collide two galaxies together to match up with what we have here. And this is one of the best that matches it up, which does a pretty good job of matching what we see. We see two galaxies with their cores down here getting ready to merge, denser areas around it, and then two streams of material coming out. The difference that you see is this one's nice and symmetrical, right? I mean, flip it over there, you know, mirror image, you can just you can flip that over and it will match up perfectly. Because typically when you put things into a computer, it's much easier to make the, everything symmetrical and say, okay, we're going to spread out the galaxy and all the stars are going to be uniformly spaced apart and they're all going to be moving the same way and the two galaxies are exactly the same size and mass. That's the easiest way to start out and do that. So when you do that, it's going to make things essentially the same. But because the stars are not uniformly distributed here or here and the masses are a little bit different, this is what we get in reality. But still we can match up pretty good, match up the idea that we can do this in a cluster. Because we can't watch that. Those, those streams coming out, they're going to be there for our lifetime and for generations to come. It takes a long time for them to disperse. Whereas on the model, computer model, we can run you know, millions of years, billions of years if needed, in a relatively short period of time. Alrighty. And here's what I was hinting at before. These are some of the very earliest clusters. This is part of the Hubble Deep Field image. Uh, Hubble Deep Field is where the Hubble telescope picks out a very dark portion of the sky. It looks like there's nothing there. You don't see any obvious, obviously no stars, no brighter galaxies, and it just keeps imaging it over and over. <coughs> so every time it can, it takes an image of that and keeps adding it together to get a great image looking very, very far back in the galaxy in the universe, looking way back and seeing all these very, very distant galaxies. We're looking back in this case about 5 billion parsecs. 5 billion parsecs, we're pushing 14 to 15 billion light years. That's back to the very edge of the universe. So what we're seeing here is what things looked like that long ago. What did things look like shortly after the Big Bang as the first galaxies were beginning to form? And what we don't see, we don't see nice giant spiral galaxies, or barred spirals, or lenticulars, or ellipticals. We see lots of irregular galaxies, and we see lots of really big star clusters. And that's some of these objects point out here, they really just look like big, they look like big star clusters to the astronomers. 
not galaxies by the sense that we have them today. Much, much smaller. And what we believe has happened over time is that these galaxies, these star clusters, collide together and merge. Okay? After a few of them emerge, you probably start forming that black hole at the center. And you keep doing that process over and over again. And this has been going on for nearly 14 billion years. That's how long this has been going on. And we've built up from these little tiny star clusters and small dwarf galaxies to the large galaxies that we see today. Two things like the Milky Way and the Andromeda galaxy that we see nearby to us. But if we look back, there's you know, bad things about astronomy in that you can't look out and see what does Alpha Centauri look like right now. I know what it looked like four years ago. Four years from now I can tell you what it looks like right now. Well, what it looked like at that point. But you know, if I want to look at the Andromeda galaxy, it's two and a half million years. If I want to look back here, I, can only, I can't see what these galaxies look like now, but I can tell you what they looked like a long time ago. So in a way, we can also look back in time. I can actually study things as they were many billions of years ago because it takes light so long to travel. If light were to travel instantaneously, then we wouldn't have this advantage of being able to look at things as they were in the past. All right, where are we? All right. Here is a little more detail of the Hubble deep field. The little numbers on each of these are telling you the distances. Smaller numbers are closer to us. The big numbers are some of the most distant objects. And there's one of them right there that's highlighted. This 3.36 is one of the more distant galaxies. Essentially, everything that you're seeing in here with, well, I see one star in there, but pretty much everything you see in there, with the exception of a couple stars, are galaxies. So all these little dots in there. We're looking way out in the deepest parts of space. So these are each one of those is a distant little galaxy. Many of those could be these tiny irregular, tiny uh, clusters of stars that we see that eventually then would form together to be a, gal a galaxy like our own. If we were to look at these and to count them, one of the things I'll have you do in the lab, actually with the lab we do on Friday, I have one that I like you to look at that has you count by clicking on them. You don't have to physically count yourself. You click, uh, click on them and do, it does a little bit of statistics on it, but the computer does all the calculations for you. It actually has you look at this. And what we find out is that as you get out in the, mo in the distant universe, most of the galaxies are irregular. There's not lots of spiral galaxies if we look back billions of years. We don't see lots of spiral or elliptical galaxies. Most of the galaxies were, irregu were irregular galaxies. Irregular galaxies are tiny ones. That's like the Magellanic Cloud that orbits around the Milky Way. So we think that that really helps us to understand that how galaxies formed was through mergers, was through galaxies colliding, coalescing, and becoming larger and larger. And that the galaxies we see today, like the one that we looked at for our picture of the day, like our own Milky Way, like the Andromeda Galaxy, we're at one point in the distant past, little irregular galaxies that have slowly combined together. And I think, let me just see. Well, let me just show this one and I'll stop here. This is one piece of evidence for that. This is one nice big elliptical galaxy. It looks like a nice elliptical galaxy. But when you look down, if you look deep down inside it, okay, the little box here, if you don't over don't overexpose it as much, within this box you actually get three cores. It actually has three central cores. 
Now those will eventually combine together, but those are probably remnants of three different galaxies that have collided together. Those, there's the cores for each of them orbiting around each other, uh, probably slowly decaying, eventually will coalesce into a single core and a much larger black hole. And again, if we caught this hundreds of millions of years later, that would all be gone. That would just be one larger core there and it would just look like that one galaxy. That's what we think, we think happens over time to really form the galaxies that we see today. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there with collisions. I have a couple other things I want to finish up on Friday for chapter 16. And then we'll have the lab as well. And don't forget article review. If you're turning in a paper copy, I'll take that now. If you're turning in the exam questions, just make sure you type them up for me and submit those on D2L sometime. Either one of those if you're doing on D2L before 6 o'clock tomorrow for credit. Questions? Have a good rest of the day. Thank <laughs> you.